Gather round, one and all, and listen to tales of excitement and adventure. Tales of daring heroes, savage monsters, and bards who just couldn't keep it in their pants. Tales of friendship, nobility, drunken foolishness, and unforgettable fun. These are tales of role-playing games, fair listeners, and this is Rollin' Bones. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your god. Hello, Boneheads, and welcome to Rollin' Bones with Ryan Howard, your source for the best in RPG interviews. My name is Ryan Howard, and I am King of the Boneheads, your dungeon master and host for this morning-slash-afternoon-slash-evening's festivities. I say morning because it is 11.25 as I'm recording this. Anyways, today we have a guest on the show. At long last, it's been a couple weeks since we've had one, uh, but today we are talking to a guy by the name of Joshua Cade who's got a very cool Kickstarter running right now, and that is for Dungeon Packs, also known as Dungeon Tape. It is a mapping tool for those of you who don't want to invest all of the money and space into 3D terrain. Uh, You want to have something flat and modular that that you can build out as you want. It's a really cool product. He does a great job of describing it. And the Kickstarter campaign is currently ongoing. So right now, with 22 days to go in the Kickstarter, uh, Joshua is most of the way there on funding. Uh, The goal is uh, 1,700. We are just over 1,500 right now with 22 days to go. Uh, So guys, jump on this Kickstarter. Uh, It is going to be linked in the show notes. Uh, So please go to the show notes, take a look at all of the offerings here, and uh, support Joshua as he is not only doing a Kickstarter and doing a Kickstarter for a really cool project, but doing a Kickstarter for a really cool project in a time that's very, very difficult for Kickstarters. As I've already mentioned on the show, there are a couple guests that I was supposed to have on uh, right around this time that have had to drop because of the uh, the issues surrounding the the times that we live in right now, and you know that's made them reevaluate whether or not they can run a Kickstarter right now. Uh, you know, Shane Hensley has put off the uh, the Deadlands, the Weird West Kickstarter for uh, for the Suede edition of Deadlands. Uh, Levi has put off the Skullcano Island. Uh, Kickstarter. I'm hoping that this will all be done sooner rather than later, so that I mean. For one, I can, you know, bring these people on the show, they can launch their Kickstarters, and they can, you know, get these products out to those of us who are, you know, eagerly awaiting these these awesome products. Uh, you know, I, I'm particularly excited about both Deadlands, the Weird West, and Skullcano Island, not just t- bringing those guys back on and talking to them again, but actually getting to play these products and, you know, hold the physical books in my hand and do reviews here on the show. But... 
you know, that's that's one aspect. But the other aspect is, you know, I want these guys to be able to, you know, continue to make money doing this thing and, you know, run these campaigns and get these products out to you guys. And also, just on a more selfish note, I want to go outside. I want to play D&D in person. I'm sick and tired of being cooped up in my apartment. I love my wife. I love my cats. I need to see other people. I need socialization. I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm in prison. But enough of that. You didn't come here for that. Uh, no, you came here to hear my interview with Joshua Cade and also uh, to hear a little bit more about kind of the, the world of Dungeons and Dragons as seen through my eyes. So I guess we can do a little bit of story time here. Um, something, uh, those of you who follow me on social media, you know, as always, you can follow me on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg on there. You, you've probably seen some of the images that uh, Josh Unruh has been posting about the the game that, you know, that, that I run, the Dark Sun game, the one that I talk about constantly. And you've probably seen a giant-ass battle wagon that my players have been dealing with uh, for the past couple weeks. That's, that's an Argosy for those of you who are, uh, you know, familiar with Dark Sun. And for those of you who aren't, it's, like I said, it's a big-ass battle wagon uh, covered in, uh, in ballistas and, and other armaments. And that has just been an absolute blast. Uh, even over Zoom, which, as you guys know, is not my favorite way to play this game. Uh, it's It's been fun. The players have been super engaged with it. Combat's been a breeze because of uh, Josh's handy uh, terrain camera. And, you know, that that's all been super fun. They have had a ton of fun. I almost killed the entire party uh, last session because Chain Lightning is a ridiculous spell. If you want to, like, zap fry your players and, and put the fear of, of your monsters back in them, put them up against a caster with Chain Lightning. Uh, that, that is a fast way to roll 10d8 and basically decimate three players. The only downside of that was that, um, you know, having a caster with Chain Lightning, uh, you've got low AC and low hit points, so... That's pretty much all that the guy did was he cast Chain Lightning once and uh, nearly killed three of the party. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, that. On one hand, I wish you would have gotten another turn where you could have done something cool. But on the other hand, uh, I mean, it was going to be like a Burning Hands or a Fireball or something like that. Some kind of AoE spell uh, that probably would have killed a few of the players. Uh, we definitely would have had people making death saves. And again, while I'm not opposed to killing players... I had a plan for what was going to happen if they couldn't take on this uh, this caster, this uh, this Templar that they were going up against. But it's always fun to see your players, you know, get revenge on something that, you know, takes them down to, to zero hit points. That's one thing I actually really love about being a dungeon master. I like dishing out the pain every now and then. Uh, sometimes that's that's a lot of fun. You get a lot of joy out of, you know, zap frying your players. But then I also like to see the comeback. It's, it's the same reason why professional wrestling is appealing. You like to see the good guy get beat up, but then you like to see him get back up and, and come at it. And to be controlling the other side of that, uh, you know, to allow them to get their heat back. You know, I feel like that's that's really the duty of the dungeon master. It's kind of the, the fundamental job of the dungeon master to challenge the players, you know, put the pressure on them, 
make it look like they are going to completely lose and maybe even get put them in a situation where they could lose and lose horribly and, you know, die. But then to allow them to, you know, think outside the box or to use the, the resources at hand to push back and to, you know, regain that ground. That's that's D&D at its finest, when you and the players are pushing back and forth against each other and you're able to present a challenge that the players then have to overcome. D&D at its worst is when either the challenge is too great and the players constantly feel like they're on the losing end, or the challenge is not enough because you have kind of thrown off the balance of the game by making the players too powerful or allowing the players to become too powerful, or not properly challenging the players, and that's something that I'm dealing with uh, right now in my Saturday game. I've got them to a place, they are level 7 right now, and I've gotten to a place where they're level 7, I've given them super powerful magic items because it's it seemed like a, a cool thing to do, uh, it's a lot of people's first like full-on D&D uh, &D campaign, so I just wanted them to see, okay, this is, you know, this is the, the cool stuff, this is the, the uh, top-level D&D stuff, I don't know that that campaign's gonna go to level 20, so I just wanted them to get some kind of epic magic items. But there's a, a challenge, uh, the, a balance that needs to be struck there, because there has to be a challenge to the players, uh, but, you know, with them being level 7, but putting out the, the kind of damage that, like, a, you know, a level, a level 10 to 15 character can put out with, you know, higher level magic weapons, there's, there's some difficulty there, because I've got to throw something at them with, uh, you know, a lot of hit points that can absorb that damage, uh, but a lot of those creatures can, you know, dish out damage that really... Uh, can can screw with a player of that level, and that's not me complaining about the Saturday game at all. That is a that is a fun and uh, and challenging game for me as a dungeon master, as I am learning to roll with the punches and whatever whatever comes up from the uh, the imaginations of my Saturday players. Uh, you know, just kind of yes anding them. That's that's my learning experience with the Saturday group, but also you know, taking super powerful PCs and giving them a challenge that is enough for them, but not so much that it nearly kills them. Or not so much that it actually kills them. If it nearly kills them, that's fine. Because, that again, that's the, the, the back and forth. And with, uh, you know, updates from my table out of the way, there's, there's one last thing I, I wanted to touch on briefly. Uh, I, I actually wanted to touch on this a while back, because this... I I believe these tweets are a couple of weeks old now. But Hankerin Fernell, former guest on the show, someone I'd love to bring back on at some point, he posted something about celebrity culture entering the realm of D&D. &D. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, uh, especially in the aftermath of Wizards of the Coast uh, making, kind of doing two, two things, really. Firstly, uh, you know, ca canonizing uh, Joe Manganiello's character. And then secondly, releasing an official source book for the Critical Role setting. Now, I understand why they're doing this. They are capitalizing on, you know, the most popular voices in the role-playing world, and they are connecting a broader audience, people who love Critical Role, people who, you know, follow Joe Manganiello and, and recognize him and know his name. You know, they're, they're bringing these people kind of into D&D &D with, hey, this is what they're doing, 
here's how you can do it the you know the way that they're doing it you know here's a book for critical role if you really if you don't know anything about dungeons and dragons but you really love critical role you know here's the book for it this will this along with our other books will help you to run a game in that world that being said though we are reaching a point where you know as as a community as a hobby we need to start kind of drawing some lines here and i don't want to insult any of these celebrities who love D&D, every single like D&D celebrity I've seen, it seems 150% genuine. I do not doubt for a second that Joe Manganiello and Deborah Ann Wool and, you know, Matt Mercer, you know, the Critical Role people, I don't doubt for a, a minute that any of these people actually love D&D. You know, th- their passion is evident. I see what they're, I see what they do. It's, you know, I I totally see their passion. It's the same passion that I have, and it's totally valid. That being said, Dungeons & Dragons and all RPGs as a whole, they they are what you make them. You know, they, they are, in essence, you and your friends, your players, sitting around a table and having your fun, having your good time doing everything you can with the resources in front of you and your imaginations to have fun. And a lot of this kind of celebrity culture that's finding its way into D&D and finding its way onto social media, I feel like we're, we're going to reach a point where it's going to be harder for a lot of people to have fun at their tables because they're seeing people with these elaborate table setups on Instagram and, and, you know, they're watching these shows where professional actors are role-playing and, you know, bringing a whole new level of entertainment and, you know, immersion into the game. And they're going to start looking at their kitchen table with their battle map that they drew on with wet erase markers and, you know, the, the minis that they painted that maybe don't look as good as some of the professional minis. And they're going to kind of, you know, mope a little bit. And then you're going to have new players who see all of this stuff and then see the resources that they have to work with. And they're going to mope a little bit because, you know, maybe in their minds, they can't bring their game to the level that they see online, on social media, on Critical Role. And so what I'm going to say now to, to all of you out there, to anyone who is is listening to this and, and wants to take my advice for, you know, playing this game, anyone who's part of this audience, be entertained by what you're seeing, you know, be entertained by Critical Role, by all of these live streams, you know, feel feel cool that someone is as awesome as a, a, a Vin Diesel or a Joe Manganiello or, you know, the big show, you know, that they that they like the same things that you like, you know, that's that's a cool feeling, you know, to, to feel that that commonality between you and someone you admire or someone whose work you admire. That aspect of, you know, celebrity culture and celebrity gaming and, you know, the you know, street live streams, uh, actual play is entertainment. That aspect is is cool. Be entertained, feel validated. Um, but don't put all of your validation on celebrities liking what you like. Because there was a time where there were no celebrities endorsing D&D. This was before my time. I don't remember this time. But there are people out there who will tell you that D&D was a thing you didn't talk about. Uh, it was a thing that you kept quiet about. And, you know, you just you just kind of, 
you know, did your thing and enjoyed it while you were doing it, but you know, you couldn't shout about it and be happy about it. Fortunately, those times are over. Uh, you don't have to hide your love for D&D. So that's, that's the plus side of all of this. But don't use critical role as the measuring stick for your game. And you've heard people say this over and over. I've said this over and over. Don't let that don't don't let that influencer culture poison role playing. Don't look at the people who, you know, have the the resources to build these massive sets and, you know, have these these cool setups and have, you know, millions of people watching their streams. I don't know if it's millions. I don't know how many people watch Critical Role. You know, all the the likes on Instagram, all the, you know, tables that are full of celebrity gamers. Uh, you know, that are, that are doing charity streams, you know, don't let that be the measuring stick for your game. Let the smiles around the table or on the screen in front of you, let that be the measuring stick for your game. Let your personal sense of, I ran a fun session for my friends. Let the gasps at the table as someone rolls that 20 that they needed to turn the tide of the battle. Let that be your measuring stick for Dungeons and Dragons. Don't be taken in by the influencer culture that is seeping its way into role-playing. And again, I'm completely fine with all of these people being here. I am not trying to push anyone out because, you know, all they know of D&D is critical role. I'm not trying to say that, you know, celebrities don't belong in this fandom. Anyone who wants to sit around a table and roll dice and drink beer, yeah, yeah, I'm all for it. All I'm saying is it's very easy once the celebrity culture comes in. It happened with YouTube, it's happening with Twitch, and it could happen with D&D as well. Don't let that creep of, you know, big money and big resources you know, making a massive production out of something that was originally DIY, something that started around kitchen tables or, you know, card tables in the basement or at the lunchroom or passing notes in classes I've heard people talk about with, uh, with role-playing. Don't let the high production values, the glitz and the glamour that's coming into D&D take the fun out of your game in your home. Don't let that stuff crowd you out of what you love doing. And I say that as someone who, you know, is trying to create content around D&D. You know, I have this podcast uh, yesterday. Yesterday was my one year anniversary of doing this podcast. And, you know, I put out a thing on Twitter about how unbelievably grateful I am to all the guests who've come on. And, you know, I, I'm, I just want to take this moment to, to thank all of you who've been listening since the beginning and all of you who came on, you know, when, when someone you recognized was on the show, those of you who stuck around after, you know, the, the big episodes that I did, like with, uh, with Hanker and Fernell or, you know, Shane Hensley, uh, or Larry Elmore, you know, guys, thank you for, for joining this, uh, this family. Thank you for being boneheads. But I feel it. I feel it all the time. I see, you know, the critical role numbers. I see the numbers around other people who do D&D podcasts and I get discouraged because, uh, you know, relative to them, I have a pretty small audience and I want to grow that audience. But, you know, the resources that I have and, you know, the investment that I've made in my podcast so far, that's this is, you know, what it's gotten me. 
and I am going to push myself to, you know, broaden that audience and to bring more people in and to really, you know, make this podcast something special, something that I can hang my hat on and be super proud of each week. And I am proud of this podcast most weeks. Sometimes I feel like I'm really off my game. Sometimes I'm bummed about the audio quality or, you know, the way my voice sounds or the amount of ums that I have to edit out of the podcast. Um, There's one. But I say this as much for myself as I say it for you guys. Don't let the big guys come in and push all of us around. If we're going to let celebrity culture into our hobby, and we already have, it has to be on our terms. It has to be out of a love and respect for, you know, the deep history of the game and the enjoyment of just sitting around, the enjoyment of the purest form of the game, just sitting around with a flat map or no map at all, theater of the mind, rolling dice with your friends. It has to come from that. It has to be pure. And that's all that I ask from from those of you who are going to to put out, you know, these these super high value, you know, high production value products and you know those of you with a little bit of fame who are coming in and you know making your mark because make no mistake you are making your mark on this hobby the fact that there is now published by wizards of the coast material for a show that started as a live stream is unprecedented the fact that a celebrity's D&D character is now canonized as an NPC, basically. Again, unprecedented. So if people are going to come in to this hobby and make these changes and, you know, shake things up and leave their, their imprint on Dungeons & Dragons and forever alter the course of what, what RPGs are going to, to be now, at least at the, at the very top level, I just sincerely hope that it's from a place of purity. You know, it's from, it's it's because you guys love the game. And it's okay, you know, if you're starting up a stream, it's okay to say, you know, I want to make a shit ton of money off of this. I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I don't care if you make profits off of anything. You know, that's that's fine. But there also needs to be a love for what you're doing and an appreciation for the people who want to see you make this content and who want to enjoy it with you. <clears throat> don't treat this as an oil field. Is all I'm asking. Don't don't come in here and you know you know drill in and and extract what you can get from here, and then you know in 15 years or maybe even as few as five years, if if the fervor around Dungeons and Dragons dies down, just leave us and abandon us and and leave us in a worse state than when we started. Okay, that's all I'm asking. As someone who's relatively new to the hobby, as someone who came in. You know, with with the boom, someone who came in right around the time that the boom started, you know, just just before Stranger Things, right as Critical Role was starting to break, right when 5th edition was coming out. Don't do to us what other people have done to other industries. Don't turn us into the comic book industry, which is now uh, bleeding out because Hollywood used and abused it, and now Marvel and DC Comics are not the house of ideas or, you know, houses of creativity, they're script farms. I don't want role-playing games to just become fodder for someone's live stream. Role-playing games in and of themselves still need to have value for those of us who don't live stream. 
That's, that's all that I ask. Just come into this industry. I accept you with open arms. I love that people are out there. You know, I love that Brandon Cutler from uh, All Elite Wrestling is, is going out there, you know, in full D&D &D garb, you know, with all of his, all of his, you know, cool entrance gear and, and stuff like that. You know, I love that he's shouting about his fandom on his Instagram. I'd love to bring him on the show. I'd love to bring any of these people on the show to talk about their genuine, true love of D&D. But I am afraid that at some point we're going to get people who were not as honest about, you know, fandom of role-playing games. You know, we might get some people who are here to exploit the fans of role-playing games. And I'm afraid that, you know, with, with Wizards of the Coast relying so heavily on licensed material and on these, uh, you know, these celebrity endorsements, I'm afraid that, you know, we could be opening ourselves to that. So all of you out there, you know, with, with big audiences who genuinely love role-playing, welcome. I love you guys. And I hope that, you know, you continue to shout role-playing games even after this boom is done. But if anyone wants to come in here and just use us fans to make a little bit of cash and then abandon us forever, I don't want you here. And I don't want you ruining my hobby. Well, that is going to do it for my ranting. Um, I hope you guys, you know, get something out of that. Uh, if you want to discuss it, again, you can shoot me an email at rollandbonespodcast.com. I'll be happy to revisit this next week if anyone wants to send in emails. Uh, you can uh, engage me on Twitter. If you know me personally, you can send me a text. I'll be happy to talk about this. I, I really just wanted to get that off my chest. And, you know, as, as I said at the top of this recording, I'm going insane in here. Uh, so if it sounds like the rantings of a madman, uh, the madman part is it every day. It just seems like the madman part is is coming closer and closer to fruition. Anyway, that is going to do it for my rant today, ladies and gentlemen. So let's get into it. Uh, we've got a great interview here with Joshua Cade, the creator of Dungeon Tape. Uh, check out his Kickstarter in the show notes, and I will see you guys on the other side. I hope you enjoy it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome to the show. I was actually able to secure a guest this time uh, at the 11th hour, last minute, I was able to bring on someone who's got a current campaign going on. So ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the designer of Dungeon Tape, which is now currently on Kickstarter. Ladies and gentlemen, let's have a warm Rolling Bones welcome for Joshua Cade. Uh, Ryan, it's a, it's a lot of fun to be here. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. And thank you for uh, braving the technological storms that, that we have had as we've been trying to pull this together this evening. Well, it's, it's, it's been rough, but I think I'll, I think I'll make it. We'll see though. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No promises. Gotcha. Well, Josh, we are going to start this interview the same way that we start every interview, as you know, from our first attempt, I'm going to ask you these opening questions uh, that everyone gets asked. So I guess to start things off, Plain and simple, how did you get into RPGs? Uh, well, quite honestly, what drove me to Dungeons & Dragons was a really boring office job. Had nothing to do but listen to podcasts and just did a deep dive into some D&D &D ones and started a group uh, at home. First, first campaign was actually a Skype session with a friend of mine, and it was just one-on-one. -on -one. But from there, we moved to a more traditional setup in person. Gotcha. Which uh, which D and D podcast were you listening to? Uh, at that time, I started off with Nerd Poker, uh, which 
was which still is going on and it's it's mm-hmm. a fantastic podcast and then i think i moved on to uh the adventure zone kind of hit two podcasts with super creative dms and that kind of guided me as a dungeon master and kind of my dnd journey since then have you been a critter at all or have you kind of evaded that that particular uh, dnd pop culture touchstone you know um my best friend and the guy i was in the one-on-one campaign with he's critical role is kind of the only one he listens to Mm-hmm. I've listened to probably the first half of the latest season, but um, it's fantastic. I just haven't really, uh, I, I guess I haven't been hooked into being a critter yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, so I am notoriously bad about not listening to actual plays. And it's partly a like psychological thing. Like I love D&D, I love playing D&D, but the idea of listening to other people play D&D, I have to be <laughs> in a very specific mood for it. right. And there's only one actual play show that's ever really hooked me, and that's mm-hmm. Knights and Nerds. Okay, I don't know if I've listened to that one. I've I've sampled a lot of them, but mm-hmm. I don't think I've I don't think I've listened to Knights and Nerds. Knights and Nerds is a fantastic actual play. It's run by a guy named uh, Tim Mathias. Okay, and it's him and a whole bunch of his friends. They're they're a bunch of great. Canadians mm-hmm. and I've actually had the chance to I've had Tim on this show twice uh, he's been really kind of instrumental in helping me get this particular podcast going sure that's great and then I've also had one of the players on as well and I'm hoping to bring the other ones on at some point how, how big is the group that uh, that plays there so it's Tim and four players so okay, there's, so there's five total yeah nice yeah I've been listening to one uh, lately that's been really good. It's just a DM and two players. It's called Try Not to Die. Both the players are a lot of fun, but I kind of find that since it's just two players and one DM, it moves really quickly and it avoids a lot of the pitfalls that some of the the real-time uh, playing podcasts fall into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, just listening to podcasts for nine hours a day. That's what got me into it. Mm-hmm. And then I, my brain was just so inundated with uh, the improv and kind of like what goes on in a campaign that I thought, well, shit, I got to do this now. And I was just taking notes and made my own little campaign and forced my friends to play through it. Gotcha. Yeah, it was fun. What's been your favorite game system that you've, you've run in your, uh, your time as a, a GM or a player? Mm, um, probably it was a system I kind of introduced when it was just playing 5e but I introduced it whenever I was doing the one-on-one campaign and that was a system for time travel. Huh. It was kind of, uh, it, once I introduced a second player, it all fell apart and the campaign <laughs> broke. Uh, I never thought that they would go to different times at the same time. And then I just kicked them out and said, you know what, we're done. <laughs> um, but it was a, yeah, there was a system, essentially there were some cultists on an island that were trying to, they were going back in time and reshaping the island big, uh, sigil Mm -hmm. and they were eventually going to sacrifice all the inhabitants and so there was a neat mechanic where every time my player would go back in time and then come to the present things were different uh just like the configuration of the islands and stuff Mm -hmm. Uh, that was that was a neat little mechanic it was i don't know if it was a game mechanic or just a uh, element of the campaign but that so far that's been my the one that i keep thinking about and and coming back to like man maybe i could bring that up back out sometime but gotcha. as far as pure mechanic inspiration is my favorite part of 5e it's gotcha. so easy clean cut mm-hmm. it's nice everyone that i've had on who's kind of talked about the mechanics of 5e mentioned the uh the advantage and disadvantage and how 5e is really kind of built around that notion yeah yeah it's just kind of uh 
simple rewards or simple punishments. Gotcha. So if you've been DMing in your, uh, your, your time uh, basically playing RPGs, or have you gotten the chance to be on the other side of the table? Uh, probably a 80-20 split, mostly DMing. This past year, I got to play in a campaign, which was a lot of fun. It was kind of a couple. It was, it was lots of little campaigns, and then one two- or three-month-long campaign. But by and large, I, I've been DMing. I had a group that I DMed for, it was almost a two-and-a-half-year campaign, I think. Hmm. Gotcha. About, half, yeah, about halfway through, their characters accidentally released Vecna, and Vecna <laughs> killed them all. And then, so their next campaign picked up in the same city where where a bunch of idiots had just released Vecna, and they had mm-hmm. to band together to uh, to deal with that. Yep, yep, that's the way to do it. <laughs> uh, that was fun. I'm not sure they've ever forgiven me for that. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the the first character that you got the chance to play? The first character I ran for a little while. I was Skyping into a session for a little bit. His name was Shim Sham. He was a, a ranger with a pet wolf, just very young and idealistic, kind of an idiot. And that he really uh, was the baseline for most of my characters since. Play a lot of idiots, a lot of naive idiots. It's great. Gotcha. Yeah, I, th- gotcha. I think as a DM, I try to be really smart and kind of like straightforward. And so whenever I get the chance to play, I just kind of do a 180 from that. Gotcha. Not a lot of characters die in uh, 5e. How did that, uh, how'd that end up happening? Really? I, I, half of my characters end up dead. <laughs> we, we, we accidentally locked ourselves underground with a big bad we couldn't defeat. And he killed us all really slowly. That'll do it. Uh, fun fact in that campaign, uh, my wolf, Tritherion, is the only one who survived, but he had been blinded. And so everyone died and left him blind and wandering around a cave with this big evil guy. <laughs> oh, God. That was the real tragedy of that campaign. Mm-hmm. Shim dying, perfectly fine. But Tritherion, blind and underground, ugh. Mm-hmm. Very tragic. That's that's the kind of thing that would make my wife never want to play D and D ever again. <laughs> yeah, if, if it makes if she listens to this, I'm I'm sorry. I felt terrible about it. Fortunately, she doesn't listen to my podcast. Ah, and that's there we the, go. That's the only time I've ever said that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> so, in your time uh, GMing, has there been an NPC that has somehow made its way into every single game that you've played, or is that? Uh, not really something that you've developed yet. Um, there was, uh, let's see, there was two. The The main one, I think, is a more traditional reoccurring NPC, which was a high-level storm cleric drunken monk. I uh, think uh, the friar from uh, Robin Hood. That's kind of who I modeled him after. Just constantly drunk, wanders in on a beer cart whenever the group is in trouble, and he just heals everybody and leaves. <laughs> nice. Yeah, he's just kind of a, oh... You guys made some questionable decisions and are almost dead. I guess Father Maximilian walks in uh, or like they all go unconscious and then he saved them from the orc band or something like that. Mm-hmm. So he's come in a couple times. Uh, and then another one, This I guess this one is not a reoccurring, but I want, I've want i always wanted to make it a reoccurring. At one point, my group had just gone way off of the, the kind of the the path I planned for him that evening. Mm -hmm. And they went into this, they broke into a restaurant sort of deal. It has a more complicated backstory. It's a restaurant in a long forgotten city, like a ghost town. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the restaurant was still pumping out sushi. So they ended up, they were like, we want to investigate. So I created on the fly a sushi lich (laughs) that that had uh, had, like very like amnesia, like short-term memory loss. And so 
they broke in and he was like, wait, why are you here? And then they kind of started, they started, rolled some really great charisma checks and pretended to be uh, in, uh, investigating his health, uh, his like food and health safety record. Mm-hmm. And they just like had a really great time with him. And essentially what he was doing over and over is just in a 30 second loop is conjuring fish from the shadow realm, cutting it into sushi and like pushing it out the door. Um, and I just love that character and how it forced my character, my players to interact with him in 30 seconds or he resets. <laughs> and that was just such a, such a weird, uh, such an unusual mechanic for 5e, which drags mm-hmm. out uh, like by design. Yeah, uh, but but we we all had a blast with it. Yeah, if you ever if you ever need a sushi lich, let me know. I'll get you some stats. <laughs> <laughs> I just might have to do that to my Saturday group. That sounds yeah. like the kind of thing they would love. <laughs> Perfect. Gotcha. So you've alluded to this a little bit as we've been talking here, but everyone kind of develops a play style, both as a GM and a player. So how would you describe yours? Constant surprise. Uh, I, my first group, the group that I ran for two plus years, was a good mix of uh, very new players and very veteran players. We had a couple people that had been playing since AD&D, uh, just been really into it. And so my favorite part of playing D&D and kind of being a DM was the newness of it all, like the surprise. Mm-hmm. And so I made sure that all of my players, both new and old, felt that that kind of thrill of we have no idea what's going to happen. You know, if two goblins walk into the room, the, the veteran players may think they know what a goblin can do, but like the goblins might have special powers. Maybe they're high-level wizard goblins and they've never seen this before. But I, I really tried to keep people on their toes while keeping... Uh, some semblance of I don't want to use the word realism but sort of fantasy realism Um, so yeah I I customized all the monsters and just really wanted to keep people on their toes surprises gotcha yeah if that makes sense I feel like I rambled and talked in circles but there you go oh that makes sense that absolutely makes sense it's it's always good to keep players on their toes especially when you get a group of players uh, like you mentioned running a campaign for two and a half years I had a similar campaign that I ran that that went for right around that same length of time Mm -hmm. and by the end of it and the start of uh, the next campaign that we all did together where someone else was GMing Mm -hmm. we all discovered that we kind of knew the monster manual at that point kind of backwards and forwards (laughs) right right and so like springing a monster on a group of people who have that much knowledge of the game Mm -hmm. as soon as you give a physical description at least one, if not like two or three players at the table are immediately like, oh, yeah, that is uh-huh. a, uh, that's a displacer beast. Right. AC is this. Yeah, they're, they're quietly look, double checking their spell book and seeing if they have like fire spells prepared or something yeah. special. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that was, that was, so uh, that long campaign, the last half of that, uh, they had found a lost city that was one of the, I, I kind of made up the lore for it. One of the original dwarven cities. Mm-hmm. It was a town. It was a city, underground city called Vegas, which was known for uh, its entertainment. And so, is the city of Las Vegas. <laughs> and uh, and so there was a whole city with residential and uh, industrial areas and um, all the necessary rooms for keeping a city going underground. But there was also the main drag of casinos. Mm-hmm. And each casino was heavily imbued with different magic. So some of the casino- casinos, even though they were long abandoned, uh, like one was in a big uh, pyramid. And so you walk in and then instantly you're in a desert. So there was kind of a l- illusion heavy magic. And so that allowed me to um, sh- like kind of surprise them. Like, sure, you think you're dungeoneering, 
but all of a sudden you're on a pirate boat. What do you do? And you're being attacked by a, a dragon turtle. Mm-hmm. It, it let me like instill a little bit of fear because they had no idea what was going to happen when they walked through some of those doors. Absolutely. So as we play this game, a lot of us who, you know, just love doing this as much as uh, people like yourself and I do, we tend to have some of our fondest memories associated with being at the table and and rolling dice with our friends. So what would you say your fondest RPG memory is? Every fond memory comes back to whenever someone failed miserably, whether (laughs) it was myself or somebody else. Uh, Like the successes are fun, but they go as planned. The failures are chaos. And it's like everybody banding together to improv. Probably my fondest moment was uh, I was DMing. My group of players were, uh, they were trying to get through a mountain pass. And there was kind of a orc band that were raising large beasts for war machines. And like their hideout was high up in the mountains and my group needed to get past them. And so I made this big kind of a community of like, you know, war orcs. With their with their mastodons with like you know a uh, uh, catapult strapped to them and this and that and then I assumed my low level group of a party of level fours were just going to sneak by and they said well let's go free all the animals and they like walked in and everything went wrong they got they were immediately noticed but then they played it off really well then they tried to fight everybody and that was poor went poorly for them. And so in their panic, they released all the animals and they ended up like escaping with a mammoth and it was wonderful. It was completely unexpected, but they failed over and over, but came out of it in a beautiful way. Gotcha. Yeah. One player came out of it with no teeth and she was very upset about that, but everyone else <laughs> got out of it kind of more or less in one piece. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times in RPGs, succeeding is boring, as you kind yeah. of alluded to, especially when you succeed spectacularly in something that, like in, in, in one case, might divert a boss fight that was supposed to be super epic. And, and yeah. you know, someone really, succeed. like one example of this, and this didn't by any means ruin anyone's fun or anything like that, but one of my players uh, was a cleric. Mm-hmm. And he he loved playing clerics because he had the most insane luck when it came to divine intervention roles. <laughs> uh-huh. He did this not just to me, but to one of the other players in that group who also GM'd us in the, another game. But one of my one of my kind of like mid level bad guys who was going to be a boss for them. Uh, mm-hmm. in a few sessions he he was this assassin guy kind of like a racial ghoul type figure and he yeah. they were trying to like get his attention trying to find him flush him out and to end the session i was going to have him sneak up on one of the players without them and like without them seeing hold a knife to their throat and say uh-huh. you wanted my attention you have it and then just vanish uh-huh. And so that plays out. I sneak up on him. He's got the the dagger to his throat, and he says, you wanted my attention. You have it. And Austin goes, I want to roll divine intervention. And I go, okay, fine. <laughs> he rolls. He succeeds. He turns that guy into a statue. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> and, and then you kicked everyone out. <laughs> He said, all right. As we ended, I was just like, damn it. 
Yeah. Yeah. I feel like um, at one point when I was playing, I was playing a pre-level high level uh, glamour bard and my buddy was DMing and we were fighting. uh, It was some wizard riding a rock that was flying around us in circles. Mm -hmm. And I just kept casting polymorph and turning the rock into a chicken. And then he and the wiz- the rock and the wizard kept falling to the ground and they took so much bludgeoning damage that it essentially killed the fight. <laughs> like every time they got up, I just poofed them back into a chicken. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, absolutely. I think the failures bring a little bit of a little bit more challenge and improv into the game and that's always fun. At least for me. Maybe other people like to succeed all the time. Oh yeah. Know. Yeah, there are definitely players out there who who want to roll super well on that uh persuasion check to right. uh, to charm the pants off of the dragon yeah yeah so <laughs> when we come to the table we end up playing with all kinds of people and some of these people become some of our absolute best friends in the world but some of these people we just don't really mesh with mm-hmm. sometimes players will do some really crappy things around the table and the worst of these players we've reserved the term of that guy for. So Joshua, what is your best or worst that guy story that you feel comfortable telling? (laughs) We, I had uh, one player at one point, um, we refer to him as that guy and uh, he refused to use weapons or magic. Like he constantly just wanted to, well, one, he just wanted to get really drunk at the table and that was a different issue. But two, he just wanted to close, he, I guess he really wanted to clothesline a bad guy. Mm-hmm. And so every time the group fought someone, he was like, all right, cool. I, I rushed past him with my arm out to clothesline him. Well, you're fighting a bugbear and he doesn't play that way. So <laughs> you're grappled. And he just did that every single time. And the, the, that among other annoying things he did. I just remember him trying to clothesline a young dragon and me thinking, all right, this is it. This guy's got, this guy's out. But yeah, just terrible with the game. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, he also and, didn't want to be there. He, mm-hmm. he acted very disinterested as well as not being good uh, in fights. Do you remember what class he was playing? He died so often. I think he played all of them. <laughs> His characters just kept getting killed for two reasons. One, he would always get up in their face and not do any damage. And two, he annoyed the dungeon master, me. And so <laughs> he kept getting attacked all the time. Did did anyone around the table ever suggest like, hey, you don't, you, you keep showing complete disinterest in using any kind of weapons or magic. Have you considered ever playing the monk or the pugilist? <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it got brought up. I, <laughs> it wasn't by me though. It's just like, man, <laughs> what are you doing? This like, yeah. uh, do you, you, he was also kind of, he had played before, but not in a long time. And so I would kind of point out on his character. She's like, this is where your sword is, or here's all your spells that you can use to make sure he understood. And it just never really got through. I know the players talk to him outside of, outside of the game. They're like, do you, do you want to come to these? Are you having fun? And he just kept showing up for a while, but, but yeah, no, I think that's, I've been fortunate in the last four or five years, however long it's been that there's just been that one instance. Everyone else I've played with or had uh, as players have been phenomenal. Gotcha. Well, last of these introductory questions here, and this is one that a lot of people find kind of flummoxing. The answer to this question can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be. We've been joined by my cat, Ronan. (laughs) Sure. Uh, If you could put anything on a t-shirt, what would it be? Mm, I think it would be, all right, so bear with me. All right. You know the the scratch and sniff? The old yep. scratch and stiff stuff. Mm-hmm. I would have 
a few different synths for different scenarios in games so I could rub my dice on it before I roll and hopefully get a little bit of luck. What those synths are, I have no idea. But maybe maybe there's like a uh, like adrenaline kind of like battery acid or kind of bitter scent for combat. Mm-hmm. Rub the net, rub the twenty the d twenty on that before I make an attack roll, something like that. Would you want like a like I don't know brimstone for if you cast a fireball? Yep, absolutely brimstone and maybe something nice like a like a juniper evergreen for some charisma checks, you know, or a perfumey smell. I, I like where this is going. This yeah, yeah, this this could work. The juniper would be good for nature checks, I think. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe and then you could even like mix and match if you're doing kind of like intimidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it could work out. I think uh, I think my good friend from my uh, my Saturday campaign, the bard uh, Horgrim Hoham, would definitely appreciate <laughs> that shirt. Oh, I'll I'll start workshopping and see if that's maybe my next project. Scratch and sniff D and D shirts. <laughs> all right. Well, now that we have all the introductory questions out of the way, um, yep. you you have a very interesting project that you you've got up here on Kickstarter. So yep. why don't you? Uh, Tell everyone about where kind of the, the genesis of this uh, this dungeon tape idea came from. Sure. Well, um, for listeners who maybe haven't seen it, it is it's called Dungeon Tape, and it is just low stick masking tape basically with walls printed on it. And the genesis was I was running my players through Las Vegas, and they just kept going directions I hadn't planned, and I was having to make maps on the fly, which was fantastic. You know, I wouldn't have changed their playstyle in any way, um, but I was using um, a lot of just dry or wet erase markers. And in those campaigns, I wanted to. I also love drawing a ton of detail, and everyone was getting confused as to which lines were the wall and which one was like the pitfall or uh, whatever else I was drawing, um, whether it was air vents or lava or other. Crazy crazy stuff that was in that campaign. And so I needed a way to really delineate kind of like the barriers where they can't go off map, the mm-hmm. barriers from the details. And so I had started using masking tape and uh, electrical tape just as a really, I had it on hand. You just unroll it. It's good for straight lines, whereas markers get kind of wonky. Um, and I gunked up a whole lot of my battle maps that way. Got a bunch of just glue on them. And so I kind of tabled that idea for a while, but a few, I guess it was back in this past fall, I started thinking about like, man, dungeon, like a tape for making maps would be great. And I started looking into the feasibility of it. And uh, yeah, started found a really great company that makes some nice lightweight tape. It's, it's essentially like washi tape, if you know that, uh, that type of tape. But uh, yeah, it came about from me trying to use masking tape and ruining a bunch of battle maps. Gotcha, gotcha. Because I've so if you've gone back and listened to a few of the uh, the episodes that I've done, I, I've recently undergone a conversion in the way mm-hmm. that I play D anD. d I mm-hmm. used to be all theater of the mind all the time because right. I didn't want to spend the money on minis. But then I got interested <laughs> in painting and then uh-huh. I figured I might as well use these minis. And then I met Josh Unruh and from there just he builds these amazing uh displays of terrain that he puts all over his Instagram, which is at material components for those of you who don't follow him already. And now I feel like I can only play tactical with, uh, with a battle mat, but I don't have the, uh, the gear that he has and I don't have the artistic ability to draw that stuff on my map. So something like this, I feel like is a real godsend for, for DMS like me who want that visualization, but just aren't, aren't good artists. 
Right. And, and, uh, and I definitely fall in that category as well. Um, I, I'm trying to, both, both with my DM style and with the dungeon tape, ride the fine line between tactical maps and theater of the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of really great pre-made maps, both 3D and 2D out there, but they always, uh, in my opinion, were a little over-stylized. And so my, I try and make the dungeon tape just pure black and white. Um, not so, so basically the wall can be used for a hell campaign or like a, just a pub on a seaside like mm-hmm. town. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's lends itself still towards theater of the mind, but uh, it's easy to slap down and people know where to go. You don't have to explain distances to them. Absolutely. That's, gotcha. That's the goal at least. So is this something that you've been playtesting with your groups? Uh, yeah, I've both playtested it. Uh, I've playtested it with my groups. I've also sent it out to friends and uh, Insta- a few people on Instagram as well. I've had a bunch of playtesters out there. Gotcha. So far, the feedback seems positive. Uh, mm-hmm. the, none of their battle maps have been ruined, so I consider that a win. Now, what's the, in, in your opinion of your own game, what's the coolest design that you've done with the dungeon tape? And then also, what's the coolest design that you've seen someone else do? Mm, uh, I'll start with the coolest design someone else did. My, my DM had put us in, he designed just like a small inn for us. Mm-hmm. which was really cool and really well done with the tapes. And at first, whenever we got to the end, we're like, oh, it's great that there's so many windows. And then Yon T started coming through the windows and we were like, oh shit, why are there so many windows? And then we got to use, um, we got to use, interact with the walls and kind of break them down inside the end to create more openings between rooms. And uh, we just had a blast. It, it was it was a nice intricate. I, I guess what I liked about it because it was an intricate floor plan, and it would have been very hard to describe without the tape. Mm-hmm. And so it was well done. Uh, the neatest thing I've done, I, I I drew up a little, basically an orc, just like a gang hideout, which had a couple secret entrances, had a fireplace that doubled as a secret exit. And uh, I used a lot of pass-through windows. I, I assumed the, these gangs would steal merchandise, but also kind of deal in the black market. So they had a big, like a bank teller window in the inside mm-hmm. with some bars and stuff. Uh, nothing too intricate, but it came out really well. I, I have two types of tape out now. One is kind of like cave walls, and one is more built stone masonry walls. Mm-hmm. And I liked. I got to use those in combination, which gave a really nice effect. So you mentioned specifically wanting to use this tape without kind of messing up battle mats. What? Right. What is it without, I mean, without getting into like, I don't know, specific chemical compounds or anything like that for, for anyone out there who's not a chemistry person like myself, mm-hmm. what is it that kind of makes this tape able to be used on your typical battle mat? Uh, well, it is made to, it's made for journaling. So it's even made for kind of paper to be put down and pulled back up. Um, I don't know the chemicals in it either, but yeah. uh, so it is very low stick on purpose. And uh, so whenever you're dealing with a vinyl map or a laminated map, it comes up even cleaner for, on that. Um, and because it's also made for journaling, it is also made to be drawn on. So you can draw over it very easily with your dry or wet erase markers. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, is this something that's designed to be easily reused or is it uh, something that you, you could reuse, but maybe that's not necessarily recommended? Uh, I... It's not that I don't recommend reusing it. It's that it's hard to get back on the roll. Uh, but it is it, it is low stick in that like you can take it off and not leave gunk on there. But it is sticky, holds its uh, adhesion properties enough to where, say you're making the map and like you put the wall down, you're like, oh, it needs to be 10 more feet over that way. 
you can pull it up, slap it back down, no problem. I've I've reconfigured maps a number of times, and it still it always works really well. Gotcha. Um, a few people have tried saving the tape and reusing it. Uh, the only thing I'd say on that is if you keep your tape runs under a foot, it's much easier. But but I try to price this stuff to be affordable enough to where it's not really a concern. Gotcha. Gotcha. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm guessing that you have had. Uh, times where you've left the tape on the map for say like a week's time before everyone yep. comes back to the table um, and and that doesn't have any kind of effect on the on the map of the tape at all no not at all uh, I as an experiment left left a bunch of tape on my vinyl map for four or five weeks and mm-hmm. it peeled off no problem gotcha whereas whereas before I'd left marker on there for four weeks and I can it's still stained gotcha now now, moving a little bit beyond kind of the, the product itself and getting into some of your, your background here, what, what is your, your background, if you don't mind me asking, as far as uh, making products and, and marketing them to people? Sure. Uh, well, my, I guess it's kind of mul- uh, a little multifaceted. I, I'm educated in architecture, and I've been working in, as an uh, architectural designer for a few years. But my first job out of college was with a small business, and we had to be really scrappy and entrepreneurial there. Mm-hmm. And I kind of got thrown in on the back end, like helping them manage their inventory and advertising and try to f- figure out their web presence. And that was really my first introduction to running your own small business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've tried, I've done a few things since then. That was probably eight years ago or so now, maybe not that long, uh, six years ago. Uh, I had a furniture company for a little while. I was making some furniture and that's whenever I learned a little bit more about taught myself a little more about branding and Instagram presence and stuff like that. And then I've helped people with their podcasts and a couple other things, just, just solidify their ideas and kind of consolidate the different directions that they want to go. Mm -hmm. And so I've kind of just been all over the place with uh, making little small businesses. And this thing has been a really fun kind of, exploration of all those all the little bits I've learned over the years kind of tie them all up into one bow with a with a product that's not the size of a credenza (laughs) (laughs) shipping full furniture was a pain in the ass and I don't know why I ever got into that business (laughs) gotcha Um, but shipping tape is great it's Mm. it's small Um, Very, very light yeah, it's I, I'm I'm just thrilled to have a product I could keep in my keep in my house and not have to sacrifice whole rooms to mm-hmm. anymore. Yeah, because I there was a time I've never like made a product or or had to uh, like like ship anything physical out except for right before I got married, mm-hmm. uh, just so I didn't have to move them and because you know it's it's nice to have a little bit more money lying around when you when you're first getting married especially when you're moving to a new state and don't have a job lined up uh so i was selling off uh pieces of my comic book collection Mm -hmm. and shipping those things was kind of a nightmare as well because they don't qualify for media mail because they have advertisements in them right and you have to weigh them and you've got a hundred, I think, I think the most I had was I had to ship out a run of like 120 books uh-huh. at, at one time in one box and like finding a box and, and getting all that. That was kind of a nightmare for me on a personal level. So yeah. shipping a credenza. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I would almost guess that the, the 150 books weighs more than a credenza. 
<laughs> well, they were uh, so they were floppies, so they gotcha. didn't weigh all that much. Gotcha. But uh, my credenza was pretty floppy too. I wasn't a very good <laughs> furniture maker. Was that just something that you kind of fell into, or was that uh, something that you kind of always wanted to try? Um, fell into it was. I mean, I've always enjoyed work like woodworking and stuff like that. But the that place I had worked outside of co- or right out of college, we we basically designed and build uh, bars and restaurants. Mm-hmm. But we also made a lot of cabinetry, so I learned a bunch of really uh, old school cabinetry techniques and just basic cabinetry. And so at that point in my life, I was thinking, all right, well, I've kind of learned how to make small business stuff, kind of learned how to make cabinets, want to work on my own. Let's just put those together. And so I started making uh, essentially handmade flat package furniture, just like nice IKEA. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. People. It was cool. It was a lot of fun. It was just, uh, I didn't, it didn't take off fast enough and my student loans were catching up to me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how has your experience been with Kickstarter? Because the people that I've had on here who have done campaigns, uh, it's run the gamut from they love it to they absolutely cannot stand Kickstarter Mm -hmm. campaigns. Where do you feel like you fall? Somewhere between um, those two. This is really my first experience, or this is my first experience running a Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. I had been very adamant against it before, uh, not not pure, not for any reason on Kickstarter's end, but just kind of I had a stubborn streak in me and said, well, you know, if I can't just grow the company myself, why would I ask people for money? But the more I looked into it, the m- one of the bases for Dungeon Tape in particular is this stuff is only affordable whenever it's in bulk, mm-hmm. which is why people like everyday people just can't go out and design their own tape. And so getting that bulk savings really is a net benefit for all of the customers as well. And so I kind of decided, I took the plunge in the Kickstarter for that reason, just to raise capital. I'm not making any profit off of this. It's just purely to get order the tape and uh, packaging and stuff. But so once I got over that hurdle, I really uh, thought it was easy and fun. Uh, it's, it's worked out pretty well so far, I guess. Um, <laughs> It, it was at least nice to put put all of my business thoughts kind of into an elevator pitch. And let's see, the, uh, what date did this project launch again? It launched uh, on the 3rd, so two yeah. days ago, three days gotcha. ago. And it finishes up May 3rd. It was a 30-day 30 30 day campaign. Gotcha. And uh, we are, I mean, I'm, as I am looking at this uh, page, it is Monday night. This will go up on Saturday. So by then it might actually be fully funded, but you're you're a pretty pretty close right now. Yeah, I, I my my theory on this I, I've I've seen a lot I did a lot of research on Kickstarter campaigns and a lot of them kind of seem to shoot for the stars. And I took a different route where I was basically just trying to hit the number the cash on hand I needed to order all of the supplies. Mm-hmm. Um, which meant that my total goal was low. Uh, it's $1,700. But then I was very honest and upfront with adding a lot of stretch goals. And each one is, as so for listeners, the, my, my Kickstarter is for dungeon packs. It's basically a group of this dungeon tape and stickers and stuff. And so each stretch goal is a different pack. So the first one we're doing is for buildings. It has a bunch of different walls and stairs and uh, wood planks. And the next one is going to be for wilderness. So I'm hoping people are kind of excited about what could be coming up in those next packs and uh, plow through those uh, stretch goals. Absolutely. Yeah, that was the theory, at least. We'll see if it works. I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, a lot of people will get super excited about stretch goals. I just got, I just finished uh, backing a mm-hmm. a campaign from IDW Games, mm-hmm. 
that was for a uh, Batman the Animated Series adventure board game and their okay, cool. their adventure game series and it was a it was a daily like check in see if we have the current stretch goals and it uh-huh. seemed like they kind of stacked it so that there'd be these big fan favorite characters that would uh, show up kind mm-hmm. of at key moments for their campaign to to right, really right. drive that interest and i do feel like that's a a pretty good strategy for Kickstarter games to have those stretch goals that people really want to uh, to see unlocked. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a I think it's a good motivator. Uh, I do think it can be done too heavy handedly, mm-hmm. where it's just like, all right, we know you're holding back the good stuff, like that's fine. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've listened to a lot of people say who are adamantly against stretch goals. Some people who think they're great. Um, ultimately, I just think they made the most sense for my product. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, they, they definitely have pros and cons. Like with anything, people can overdo it. So once the uh, the campaign is done, mm-hmm. once kind of every you know you have that capital, you're you're ready to to start things going. What's the next step from there? Um, the next step would be <laughs> hurry up and get everything shipped out to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the I mean logistically, the next step would be uh, sending my designs off to the tape manufacturing company, uh, ordering the packaging, ordering all of my stickers that comes with it. So it's packs of both tape and stickers. And then, yeah, it's just product ordering and then getting it all in and throwing it together and shipping it out. I've pretty much got the branding done for it all. I've got all the designs done. So it's just kind of hit send on the emails and go. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking more broadly, it would just be coming up with more designs for different packs and interviewing people who have used it, uh, see what would help uh, different uh, GMs the most. Uh, my basic theory on this is I want to get, I want to draw the boring stuff for you. So I don't want to draw the the like the fun traps or like piles of bones because as a GM, like that's fun to draw. Mm-hmm. But I'll draw the walls for you all day. Walls, doors, windows, all that stuff that you just do over and over and over and kind of get tired of. Find Absolutely. more expensive than that. And are there any plans for you to like launch your own website, have your own kind of uh, storefront set up? Um, I mean, I do have my own website up, uh, dungeontape.com. It's, I, I don't know about a store. I would like to put my products in some brick and mortar game shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple here in Austin that are really neat. I've been you know, up until the whole pandemic, I had been kind of going over there and talking to them about my tape. And a couple of them, I dropped off tapes purely just for them to use whenever they're hosting D&D nights because I just thought it'd be fun to have people using my tape. Uh, Yeah, next step for Dungeon Tape will be probably get get into some brick and mortar shops, but primarily sell through Instagram and online and my website. Oh, and and so you you, would you be looking at like setting up on Amazon at all? Or is that kind of a little bit beyond what you're what you're looking at right Um, now it's definitely a possibility i looked into setting up with amazon when i was making furniture they take a pretty decent cut out of the price if i remember right and you have to ship everything to them and then they ship it out um i think with a product this size it's easy enough for me to pack and ship from my living room so i'll probably just ride that train until i can't anymore um especially with i mean my margins are pretty low. I'm trying to keep the price point down to, to where anyone can afford it. And it makes sense. Um, and packing and shipping is the most expensive part of products this small. So I think having to ship it to Amazon, then they have to ship it somewhere else would just cut into any, it would just drive the price up too much for, for customers. Would there be any interest in partnering with uh, some of the other, uh, you know, big 
kind of companies that that do terrain solutions and stuff like that like say if uh, dwarven forge were interested mm-hmm. would would there be any interest in kind of partnering with one of those companies there's there's been a couple companies that have approached me at this point it's still fun for me to run on my own mm-hmm. uh, so I think I'm just gonna try and do it myself maybe uh, maybe partner up just for a cross promotion but at this point I, I think it would ha- I, I would like to get the idea of dungeon tape and dungeon packs fully fleshed out and kind of created to where there's a f- maybe four or five different packs out there and I, f- I feel comfortable with people using it and really uh, I've set the branding and the tone for the product and then I would be comfortable I would feel comfortable bringing like giving it to somebody else or like sharing it mm-hmm. but for now it's fun just going on my own I mean once probably I'd hold out on my own until someone just made me a sweet offer to take the whole thing from me and then I could do that and then work on another project gotcha so just so all of you are aware of kind of the the stretch goals that uh are on the table here so to speak mm-hmm. like Joshua already mentioned we've got the wilderness pack coming up next uh, then there's a steampunk slash mechanical arcana punk uh, Joshua on on here. You you compare it to uh, Warhammer and Eberron. Yeah. And from there we've got the uh, cross hatch pack. Which uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. It seems like this this one's designed to look a little bit more like a, like a hand drawn map almost. Yeah, it's it's gonna be. Yeah, a lot of the old school map map making styles just rely on cross hatching to denote kind of hierarchy between elements, and I want to bring that in. Gotcha. So, so there's no specific rocks or wood or anything. It can be. This is kind of the theater of the mind pack. Then from there, we've got the evil pack and the good pack uh, yep. for your undead and your your clerics temples and yep. your your hell and heaven. Then we go to the elemental plane and then the astral plane. Yeah, the elemental plane, I'm excited for those two, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. The good and evil will be fun, but the elemental plane draws some kind of like watery walls. That would That's going to be a lot of fun. And, uh, I've, I've always wanted to play a campaign in the astral plane just for the three-dimensionality of it all. And I don't know, I think that'd be fun. That'll be kind of a, an artistic stretch for me trying to figure out what to do for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's why I put it last because it would be hard. <laughs> yep, gotta gotta go full on Jack Kirby there. Yeah, yeah. And are there any other uh, kind of ideas that you've had? I know one that comes to mind uh, just to to me offhand, but might be kind of difficult. Is uh, w- would there be any interest in something like a uh, like an urban pack? Uh, I think that's kind of what I was. Well, the buildings pack kind of gets there. It's mm-hmm. for everything. It's the exterior of the building and in. But it would be fun to, I want to make an addition to the buildings pack that has like curbs and lights and like stuff for the city uh, around the buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I, I drew some of those up and it, uh, I wanted this pack to be under $30. And once I started adding a few more tapes to it, it uh, started encroaching on the $40, $50 range. And mm-hmm. so I think I'll do a, a city add-on to this mm-hmm. at some point. Gotcha. Yeah, I mean, for right now, everything's kind of couched within the the realm of medieval fantasy. But if this mm-hmm. catches on, I can I can easily see uh, potential for something like a like a modern city pack, or even like yeah. a, an old west pack for those of you who are yeah into Deadlands like like I am. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and I think that kind of comes back to next steps for dungeon tape and dungeon mm-hmm. packs is just put these out there and then see where everyone else wants to go and what would be most helpful for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even uh, even Hero Forge started out with uh, kind 
kind of limited options based on mm-hmm. what's kind of most popular on the table. And now they've got crazy nonsense like elephant people. Right. <laughs> and, and just, yeah, modern modern hats and stuff. They've they've gotten pretty silly, but their their stuff is still really cool. Gotcha. So as we're kind of running up against time here, uh, it, this, this has been a great conversation. It's, it's really cool to see kind of new and intuitive products like this come out, but I want to turn the rest of the episode over to you just to promote anything else that you have to promote, any other links, social media, anything you want to get out there. Uh, the floor is yours. Well, uh, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's, I've, I've had a blast. Um, as far as self, uh, self-promotion. Uh, Dungeon Tape Promotion, I'm largely, uh, pretty much mostly active on Instagram. That's just at Dungeon Tape. There's also a Facebook, but uh, I mostly stay on the Instagram. So if you're interested in what I sell or kind of what we've been talking about, just head over there. Um, obviously, Kickstarter, look up Dungeon Packs, it's there. I think we've talked about that quite a bit. The only other thing I'll add is this is being a part of this community. has been a lot of fun and I'm always someone who like sketches and doodles. And so drawing these tapes have been a lot of fun, but I've also started selling uh, kind of t-shirts and different designs that aren't necessarily dungeon tape related, but I put them in the same store. So if anyone's interested in looking at like some cool t-shirts, I've got a couple up there. Uh, my favorite one now is just an all over print uh, RPG dice shirt. So it's got all the D20, the D10, and all over the shirt. Uh, I only drew the max number for good luck. And yeah, I mine is in the mine is on the way. I think the pandemic is slowing down shipping. But uh, but yeah, largely just go to the Instagram if if any of this strikes your fancy. If you're looking to kind of up your mat making game or just spend more time drawing details and not walls, that's that's what this tape is best for. Gotcha. And uh, and lest we forget, uh, in these times of uh, of isolation and and gaming online you have actually added uh dungeon tape assets to roll 20 have you not i have and i'm going to keep that updated uh as i keep making more tapes and stickers and stuff so yeah on my website dungeontape.com there is a freebie section and in that uh, there's a zip with all of my designs that i've converted to easily work on roll 20 uh, I've put all the walls in, I think, 5, 10, 30, and 60-foot segments you can mix and match to, to play. And, uh, yeah, I've also got a few other tile map patterns up there that I used to make. I think that's it. Did I forget anything else? You're, uh, you're, you're better, better at this than I am. Uh. <laughs> gotcha. I, I think that's everything so yep. far. Uh, I will stick the link to this Kickstarter in the episode description. Please so do. those of you who've not backed it already, uh, please view the episode notes and uh, go ahead and uh, visit this campaign. And if you uh, like what you see, go ahead and uh, jump on one of these backer tiers here. You've got a, uh, you've got several to choose from. Some of them come with free shirts. They all come with free stickers. Absolutely. Well guys, that is going to do it for today's episode. Joshua, once again, thank you for agreeing to come on the show with such late notice next week. Uh, we are going to be talking to a gamer and a uh, graphic designer. He's done work on stuff like, well, uh, the episode that we did last week, Savage Worlds Adventure Edition. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, we will be talking to Carl Kiesler here on uh, Rolling Bones. But until then, whether you rolled a one or a 20, I am so glad that you decided to roll your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I'll see you next time.